Hey, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, Nate and I are going to go in a little bit of a different direction than we have recently and talk about some favorite resources that he and I um, enjoy in this in this particular episode, books. Now, before we jump into it, uh, every once in a while, I'll see an article talking about, you know, Bill Gates, here's the 52, he reads 52 books a year. This entrepreneur reads this many books a year. And I think that's cool. There's another entrepreneur, uh, one who's very influential on me. His name's Naval Ravikant. He said, instead of reading 100 books in a year, I'd rather read one book 100 times. Find that book. And for me, at least for me in this episode, we're going to talk about some books that have been extremely important to us. For me, the books that I'm going to talk about definitely fall into that category. These are ones that I that have changed my life, uh, ones that I continually reread over time. And uh, I don't make these recommendations flippantly. Um, and I'm going to talk about what those books are in just a second. But Nate, what are your thoughts about uh, these books that you're going to talk about uh, here in the next few minutes? Yeah, and just exactly what you said. And yes, yes, yes. Pick a few books and read them, reread them. It's, not, it's, a, it's about richness of content and understanding. And I love that uh, I had a friend visit the other day and he looked at my big shelf of all of my different business books. And he, the, the one question he asked me, Daniel, was, of all these books, which ones have you actually read? I was like, mm-hmm, great question. It's interesting because right behind me, I've got a big old bookshelf here, but I've actually read every single book on that show. Yes, you have. I know that about you. <laughs> but there are only two here that I'm going to recommend on this podcast. Cool. So I've got the list here. Um, I'm not going to say whose is who. We'll find that out as we get into the episode. Uh-huh. But Con- Conquer the Chaos, uh, Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, Start with Why by Simon Sinek, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. I hope I'm not butchering his name there. Um, and then The Four Disciplines of Execution by Sean Covey. Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized, and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory. And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio, and we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school. So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school. So let's uh, jump into it. First off, Nate, um, Conquer the Chaos by Clayton Mask and Scott Martineau. Um, why do you recommend this book? Yeah, so this is really, for me, the f- kind of the first book after E-Myth by Michael Gerber that I, that I, that I really cracked open uh, to address my life as a, as a business owner, transitioning from being a musician to um, adopting another career title. Hmm. owning business owner. And so what I love about Conquer the Chaos and what I love about, I, I know I know both Clayt and Scott fairly well from having you know, met them numerous wow. times, also studied with them some and, and done some leadership training. Um, and, and they're just awesome humans to begin with. And most importantly, this book is addressing really that startup phase for us as music school owners. It's not about a music school. It's about them starting their um, software company that was then uh, called Infusionsoft, now called Keep. Um, but they are really embracing the idea of a small business. And it's so important because so many of the books that are sitting on the business shelf are sort of 
written from the perspective of a founder who's then gone on to have a business valuation of, you know, $4 billion. And their, their perspective, frankly, their memory of what it's like to be a small business like, you know, Brooklyn Music Factory and what it means to start up that in, that business and just sort of work through all of the different challenges in each bucket of business. Honestly, a lot of the books on the, you know, in the bookstore right now, they're not addressing our needs. I think Clayton Scott do a really good job of capturing those first few years in this book. So that's why I keep coming back to it. Um, I reference certain chapters over and over, um, and I reread them, and I share them with members of my team. Um, but I think, you know, the key takeaways for Conquer the Chaos is that it's super easy to read. It's really a comprehensive overview of just sort of sales, marketing, automating our school. And it and it's really essential, the most essential part, it's from the perspective of small businesses. They continue, even as their software company has grown and grown, they are hyper-focused on serving small businesses. And Brooklyn Music Factory uses their software to this day. You know, we've been hmm. using it for, for eight years or something. Sounds like... would. Um... Is this more of a blueprint for how to build a small business or because I'm trying to figure out, you know, yeah. if a music school owner is listening to this, um, why would they want to read this? What would need to be what would be going on in their school? What challenge do they need to overcome or what goal are they shooting for that would make this book like, wow, that, that of all of these books that Daniel and Nate mentioned and yep. you know, yep. Oprah's picks and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Like, why would totally. they read this one? <laughs> yeah, great question. I wouldn't call it a blueprint per se. Right. I think that's a great question. It's much more of it captures a couple of areas. The first and foremost is it captures just the emotional sort of um, uh, roller coaster ride of being an entrepreneur in that in that scaling phase. Right. So for those of, of for our listeners who are thinking, you know, I've got a few I've got a, one or two teachers in my studio and I'm aspiring to break through that, you know, 250 student mark. And, and, and hit three or 400 students in my studio and bring on multiple teachers, there's a lot of emotional, um, we're going to hit a bunch of barriers along the way. And Scott and Clay do a really nice job of just talking about how to work through those emotions in the first chap- in the first section. And then the second section is where they focus on their expertise and honestly what their software serves, which is the notion of just sales and marketing systems, right? And they love automation. So they get into automation there. But I'd say, honestly, the chapter that was the game changer for me mm. is, was the chapter on disciplined optimism. And you and I have talked about this, just touched on it briefly um, in a previous episode. Can't remember which one, sorry. But chapter five, disciplined optimism, is essentially a reworking of a concept that was introduced in the book Good to Great um, uh, <clears throat> By James Collins, and 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 James Collins was actually like a coach to Clayt and Scott, wow. who they brought into Infusionsoft. So, so they sort of reworked it and put it in some really simple terms and disciplined optimism in a nutshell. So this is worth just ordering the book and rereading and reading and reading and reading and sharing this chapter. But in a nutshell, it just says, look, as entrepreneurs, we're all extremely optimistic, and our hustle factor is off the charts. But we need to couple that and balance that with the discipline of the facts right in front of us. In other words, 
just observe exactly where we are in our business today and say, given the facts, I'm going to have the discipline to look at these facts, i.e. whether it's the financials, whether it's the fact that you're not retaining your students at the level you need to, or the fact that you're not retaining teachers, or you're not recruiting teachers. The discipline to look at that and say, okay, given our challenges, let me apply my optimism to the most important one or two challenges, rather than just being optimistic that everything's going to work out somehow magically. Hmm. You know, that the hustle factor is alone, is enough alone. So anyways, honestly, Conquer the Chaos is really just um, going to help you emotionally work through your business. But then also, chapter five, Disciplined Optimism. Buy it just for that. Yeah, it, sounds like, it's a, it <laughs> sounds like it's a key concept that you've really latched onto. I've totally yeah. latched onto it, Daniel. You've heard me talk about it. Oh, yeah. You know, off the podcast. We talk about it all the time here and... I talk about it with my team consistently. We just finished annual planning with my team at Brooklyn Music Factory. And I bring that up regularly over the course of the days when we're, we're strategizing um, what projects to work on and where to really just be disciplined about focusing our limited resources. Now, which brings me to our second book, your book, Daniel, which I'm so glad you put this on there, um, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. Uh, tell me why that made your list. Okay. It's interesting because I asked you a question in the previous, uh, in this, in Conquer the Chaos, is it a blueprint? And you said, no. Scaling up is that blueprint. Yes. My struggle for a long time was, to me, all of business was marketing. What, you know, marketing is like 80 90% of business, right? And I couldn't conceive of what else was there. Like intellectually, I knew like, oh, there's hiring and there's team and I got to do my taxes and, and keep track of all this stuff. But in absence of actually having experience of someone telling me, oh no, here's the proper dosage of each of those elements, I just defaulted to what felt natural to me. I think every business owner does this. And I think the value of scaling up is that it actually shows you, it shines a light on every area of business and tells you what you should be thinking of it. And I got to tell you, it's, I would say it's more of a, it's almost like a college textbook, to be honest. And, and you know this, Nate, but I, I'm, I'm saying this more for the benefit of those who are listening or watching, that it's, it's almost like a college textbook, not even one that I would read through cover to cover. It would be something where if there's a particular area of the business that I felt was weak, let's say my business, I'd go and read that section. Or if it's one where, you know, I don't read the marketing section as much as I, a couple of years ago, I didn't read the marketing section as much as I read, you know, the the, the part of financial fluency. When that piece, I, I began to realize just how far I had to go in learning about that aspect of the business. So I, I would just completely ignore sections of the book for a while because I didn't need to reread it. So oftentimes I just go through and read a couple pages Reread them. Look at the worksheets. There's tons of worksheets that that go on, go on in that book, and um, that's why I think that's uh, a super valuable book for studio owners to read. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. You you bring up a really good point, Daniel. When you say we're biased towards the thing, honestly, that we're most interested in, you're just masterful with marketing, and obviously, you had a passion for that when you own, ran your studio and then you've helped so many other studio owners develop 
you know, a, a repeatable system around marketing and improve their, um, you know, attracting tons of leads, et cetera. But we also have a bias, like an avoider syndrome, right? Okay. So we, we like, we avoid the parts of our business that we're really not that passionate about. So in scaling up, which at one point, I think I owned three copies of it. So I'd always, <laughs> no, dude, I'd always have a copy to give someone when someone asked me a question and be like, wait, you need to read about the, the cash chapter. Yeah, dig it. Boom, I pulled it. So my question for you is, he has four sections. He has people, strategy, execution, and cash. Mm-hmm. For you, what do you think you avoided the most? Like of those people, strategy, execution, cash, where you were like, okay, Vern, I'm going to keep coming back to your chapter. I'm going to read it. I know that I'm working on it. Well, for you, where, where, what was your avoidance? Okay, I'll tell you. It, strategy and execution were never my problem. Very <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, I... I and so by default, then it had to be people and cash, but it was for two different reasons. And I wonder if people can resonate with this for cash. I just thought this book's written for people who have like a $10 million business. Here I am with my studio. Why do I need to worry about the cash section? You know, he's talking about all these strategies for getting your vendors to pay you ahead of time, all that sort of thing. And I gotta be honest, there are aspects of this book, even if you do own a larger school, that maybe you could skip over that section forever. But as I began to study that section more and even took his little online quiz to to see where your business was healthy and where it wasn't, I started taking notice of even some of the simplest things he talked about in that cash section. So I started keeping a, a profit and loss statement. Even against my own better judgment, like I don't need to do this. I only have this many expenses, et cetera, et cetera. But when I started doing it, I started thinking in a different way about my business. Even though the numbers were fairly simple, it wasn't complicated, like a a 10 million a year, $50 million a year business. But I, I began to see things. I noticed trends. I started thinking like a business owner. And then it became second nature to me. And so now I have years of profit and loss Statements on a, on a spreadsheet, I can see trends over time. And mm. that was really helpful. The other part was people. For a long time, it was just me. Wait, and hold I, on. Can I ask you, can I ask you a cash question first? Sure. But for, I want to hear your people. So I love what you said in terms of like, it may appear that he's getting really wonky around dollars and cash and that it doesn't apply to our music school if, it, if we only make four hundred or $500,000. But then you're like, no, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to create profit and loss statements and I'm going to look for trends. In your case, Daniel, what was one, and you said you're good with strategy. I love that. What was something hmm. that you observed in a profit and loss statement where you're like, huh, and it got you to think differently? Can you be like hyper-specific, maybe around an expense that you were like, I'm going to invest more in this. I don't invest yeah. enough. Or I invest too much in that. Or just something. And maybe apply it to grow. I don't know. Wherever you feel comfortable applying it. But I'm curious where you might have seen a trend. And it might have gotten you to think differently about your strategy moving forward. So I started keeping track of this. And then I, initially I was looking at it and thinking, what do I do this? What do I do with these numbers? Like, what do I Okay, yeah, I have on. all this data now. So I actually took it to my accountant. This is just one example. I took it to my accountant and I said, hey, I mean, you see my numbers, but here they are in you know, a more organized form. What do you see? And they said something. They said, which I think is a perfect segue into what we're going to talk about next. 
Well, if you want to grow more, you're going to have to put more expenses into your team. You you are hyper-efficient. Look at your profit margin. If you you want to make more revenue, you're going to have to invest more in that particular category. And I looked at it and I I thought, oh, I, I never would have thought of that. So this is a case where I had an outside voice, an expert telling me, and then because they could see the numbers so clearly, it just immediately jumped off the page to them. Whereas if I just kind of gave them a bunch of bank statements, a bunch of invoices and said, hey, what do you think? There's no way that they could have so concisely said it. He said it almost instantly. And that taught me something in and of itself as well, in that even that simple statement by him modeled for me, oh, I didn't know you could think about it that way. So that's yeah, just one hyper-specific example. And I love that too, Daniel, because we're talking about the five books that made a difference. And we um, think books are going to be full of solutions. Yeah. They're not actually. They're full of actions, honestly, that we either, like you said at the opening, you said what Naval's quote, I'd rather read one book a hundred times. Yeah. Because essentially you read Scaling Up a hundred times. I'm sure you've referenced it well over a hundred times. And then one of those times you were inspired to be like, okay, I'm going to get serious about my profit and loss. I'm just going to get organized. I don't even know what to do with it yet. Really? I mean, can I be honest? The first time I read it, I barely even got past introduction. There were so many things for me to do just in the introduction of that book in terms of organizing things. Like everything was working well, but it, it it gave me a framework for organize, for treating my business and organizing it like a professional and thinking about it like a professional instead of, oh, money comes in, it gets put in the bank account and I pay myself this and I pay my taxes and, and that's it, that's business. It just, it, it uh, in a way, you're almost putting on your dad's shoes, you know? Yeah. You're going to grow into yeah. those things. <laughs> What's fascinating is like, so we go from our book that made, made a difference. How did it make a difference? You took an action and then you took that organized, you took that action, which organized your dollars into spreadsheets that then somebody else could actually reference and help you improve your business. Yeah. I got to tell you, dude, with, with the clients that we work with now, like we, we work with some amazing school owners and Honestly, a lot of them have a very similar question. Hey, I'm not sure what to do with this profit yeah. and loss statement. You know, they'll share it with them. And they're like, I, I have very clear goals, but I don't really know what to do with it. But the mere fact that they're getting into a space where they're organizing those things and able to share them with us, it means that you and I can then help strategize with them. So, exactly. um, okay, so scaling up. Anything else you want to share about it? Because I'm such a huge fan of that book and I was yeah. so psyched you put it on there. Well, well, two thoughts. One, that and I even want to reference what you just said there about the clients. This is par for the course. Most people don't keep track of their numbers in all areas of their business because they don't see the applicability. They don't say, well, I'm going to gather them, then what do I do with them? They don't have that strategic view yet. And if that's the case, you're not going to get it without at least gathering that first. So even if you don't know why you're starting the habit, but a lot of experts say you should do it. You probably should do it and then perhaps find someone to do it. But the other part of it too is that people come to me and say, hey, my marketing's all messed up or I'm not getting enough leads or whatever. And they start giving me a narrative as mm. to what they think it is. And I'll just say, hey, show me your marketing metrics. Well, I don't keep those. I go, I show them what they need to gather. They gather that for it. They put it in a spreadsheet. And usually within 30 seconds, I can diagnose their problem. 
I love and, that. <laughs> and um, I mean, almost without fail. I, I, this has happened twice in the last week with, with two separate people. And mm-hmm. um, but what preceded that was they they sent me a long narrative story in an email. I said, just send me some numbers. That's all I need. I don't need the story. And in almost every case where someone sends me the story, it's usually never right anyway. <laughs> so I just want to see the numbers. Same thing with cash. Now, before we jump on, because I want to ask you about your next book there, Nate, there was a second area. You said, what did, I, what did I ignore? One was cash. The other was people. I can be a little more brief on people. People, I just was the lone ranger. I was the lonely cowboy in the saddle going all by myself. Uh, and at a certain point, well, actually, so I didn't even need it. Um. So fortunately, when I did start expanding my team, um, I, I, I had already, this book was already in my life. And so I actually could start from, from the beginning doing things right, I guess. And this book gave me kind of a blueprint, which is very different than what I said about the cash section, because I'd been in business for about 10 years before I took that part seriously and started building a PL and thinking about things in different ways. Um, with the people part, I'd also been in business about 10 years before I really started hiring people. You know, just a couple of years ago, I had one person working for me this past year. I had 14 different people working for me. Um, uh, you know, at various lengths of time, various levels of intensity, but, um, yeah, I'm really glad that that book was there for me because it helped me scale in, in a way that it's, I mean, honestly, it's been great. The thing that I hear, I'll shut up after this. Okay. <laughs> the thing that I hear more books. I know. I really thought this was going to be a fast episode, to be honest, Nate, but apparently <laughs> we have a lot to say about these topics. Um, the, the, the number one complaint I hear from people is finding people to hire, actually hiring them, managing them. Oh no, these people aren't doing what I'm asking them to do. Uh, most of the trouble I hear, especially from mid-sized schools and hire are, are that team piece. I've just been very fortunate from the beginning. I built this thing. Um, I, I didn't shoot from the hip. I, I used a lot of smart books and even some books I'm not, we're not mentioning on this podcast, like um, Brad Smart's book on hiring was really influential on me. I'm not mentioning it here, even though that was a really important one. It's just one, not one that I reference a lot. So it didn't make the cut, mm-hmm. um, but it's called top grading. Anyway, um, I, I was just fortunate that that team piece has never been a thorn in my side. It's just been really smooth sailing. And, and I can point to this book as one of a few books that are really influential on that. So that's my thoughts on scaling up. Nate, I don't know. Since you've read this, I actually haven't read the books except for Start With, uh, well, oops. <laughs> well, I actually already said what the books were, but I have read <laughs> Start With Why. Um, but you've read Scaling Up. Is there any last you know thought that you'd put in there about Scaling Up, maybe how it influenced you since we've both read this one? Separately from each other, I might add, before we even knew each other. Yeah, totally. So I love his, um, I love his chapter on cash, and I'm going to give a concrete example of how I applied that to Brooklyn Music Factory. He has a subsection called accelerating cash. So, um, you know, I'm probably not going to get it exactly right, but essentially the idea is from the point of sale to the point of collection, you want to get that cash in your bank as soon as possible because cash like time is just a resource that we invest. Like you put so well, you needed to invest some of that into people in order to grow. Well, at Brooklyn Music Factory, you know, we did just basic things like we adopted prepay with a 5% discount um, just to put more cash in the bank to basically be cash forward. 
he really hammers this idea that you want to you want to you want to sell a service and then you want to be cash forward. You want to be collecting the money even before you deliver the service because the bottom line is dude is getting back to your you know wherever you have issues in your company where you need to invest resources if you're a cash forward company i.e. you're collecting all the money before you even deliver the service. Yes, you need to be very careful with that because, of course, you need to pay your teachers and yourself, et cetera, and you need to spread that cash out over the month, coming months. But it gives you all this money in the bank up front. So, for example, it's we're recording this in January. We have a whole number of families that are prepaying for the, for the season, right, through June. So now we have all this cash up front. And what are we going to do with that? We're going to invest X, we're going to invest about 4% of it into marketing to ensure that our summer camp is totally sold out, you know, by April 1st. Yeah. Right. So we're able to, anyways, that accelerating cash subsection of scaling up, frankly, is totally worth buying the book. <laughs> that one was, that one was, that concept is really helpful to me as well. The thing I want to say is there's a really great example in the book because you hear that and you're like, how is cash going to help your business grow? Like, of course we need money. But the example he gives in the book, I'm just be very brief on this. The example he gives in the book is that there was a company that I think that the average time that it took from the from when they made the sale to when they collected the money was something like 60 to 90 days after the sale. And mm. they actually got it when he worked with this company they actually got it that they, on average, they had a negative 16-day average. In other words, they were getting the money 16 days before I think they even went into production or something like that. Right, before um, they began delivering the service or... What that did for them was that it allowed, since they had the money earlier, their company grew faster because they could invest the money sooner. Yes. In, in hiring or growth or marketing or whatever. One last thing before I ask you a question about yours is, if you're watching this, because I know some people watch yes. the video, here's just some of the worksheets that are in the book. It might look yeah, frightening awesome. to you, but um, these worksheets were helpful to, to me because then I didn't have to take what was in the pages of the book and kind of figure out, well, how do I calculate this or whatever? They, they do all the work for you. They just, they give you some really great tools in here. So that's scaling up. Let's go to the next book, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. This is actually one that Simon, I, I think, is a little bit more of a public figure in business um, totally. in, a, in a way that like Gary Vaynerchuk is or... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of other folks that kind of have a little bit of household recognition name. Um, Seth Godin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy who wrote Story Brand, Donald Miller. Like right. he, Simon is just one of those people that people kind of know, but um, and probably know this book. There's probably a good number of people who've read this book. Of, of all the books in this list, this is the one I wouldn't be surprised if people have already read it. But why would why do you recommend this book? Uh, start with why. Why do you recommend it, Nate? Um, it's funny because I'm reading the little like sub underneath it where it says, it's, it's like, start with why, how great leaders inspire everyone to take action. That's actually not why I put this on there. Mm-hmm. It's not about leadership. It's actually about self-awareness. Um, for me, this book is so valuable because if you're an entrepreneur um, like myself, uh, you're just full of ideas of the next product or service that you can market and sell. You're just constantly like, well, what if we try to sell this? What if we try to sell that? What if we introduce, you know, you know, group classes for ages four and five-year-olds? That would be a great idea. Let's do it. Um, and the challenge is, is that we're always in that idea phase, but we've never actually slowed down enough to really dig into the why. Like, why are we even in the music education industry? Or why are we doing whatever? If you're not, if you don't happen to own a school and you're listening to this, 
why are you even doing it? And so, you know, um, Simon Sinek just does an awesome job. You can start with his YouTube video, which has like 7 trillion views. Yeah. Um, start with why. <laughs> it's a great place to start. I've showed that video to my team many times. Um, but basically, he just really walks you through the system for unpacking the why. Start with the why, like he says, and he just gives you a series of questions. He gives you all these great examples of other entrepreneurs and their why. And then he says, from there, you go to the how and then you end in the what, mm-hmm. right? So we always flip it. We're like, what I do is teach music lessons. Yes. Not, it. Yeah, not only that, the, I think my observation has been is that most people that I coach, this even happened yesterday uh, with a client. They go straight for the how, as you're mentioning. Yes. And then if I actually slow them down and ask them the why, they begin to realize that there were actually a number of other options available to them. And yes. in other words, there's more than one way to get to that goal. But it's yes. like people, they, they, they don't want the tension or the ambiguity of, oh, how do I, they, oh, I need to do this so I can go to there, A, B. When in reality, it's actually A through Z to get to X. There's all these different options. So this is how people get stuck in doing programs they don't like or taking on roles they don't like. Or, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. Every, every school our size has a preschool program. I guess we have to do a preschool program type the situation. Um, maybe, Nate, I'm going to flip it back on you. You asked me for a specific example. I'm going to ask you for a specific example. Where, where was there a place over the last 10 years or a time over the last 10 years where the concept in this book helped you avoid a bad decision or make a really good decision or exploit an opportunity? I'm curious. Something come to mind? Yeah. To- uh, you know what? I'm, I'm actually just reading some of the notes in my side of the book, right. which is valuable. So, yes. So, um, you know, at Brooklyn Music Factory, our purpose is really straightforward. It's like, it's a, it's a songwriting program that's focused on collaboration. It's like, we're building community. How do we use music as a tool to connect people? And so we didn't always talk in that way, mm. right? We, for, we started by just being like, we teach music lessons. We teach band classes. And then eventually, as, we, as I dug in and got a little bit, you know, a little started by getting a little bit more clear on, well, why do I actually want to show up to Brooklyn Music Factory? Because I was already teaching music lessons. I was already doing these things. Why start a company? You know, um, I uh, basically unpacked a couple things, which was like, oh, wait a minute. Our community room where people are gathering, where a lot of people call a waiting room. We do not call it a waiting room. We call it a community room. Our place where all the families are gathering in between lessons or in between class rehearsals, you know, band rehearsals, that is the most important space we have. Mm. And so we invest, you know, we invest a lot of money into that space. It's the largest room in our buildings and real estate is not cheap. <laughs> the yeah. BK, we're paying a lot per square foot. So this is an example of where I was like, oh, wait a minute. And so I want to give another concrete example. That he, so, well, basically, the point is, is when I got more clear on my why, I was like, oh, wait, that's why we invest in a community room. That's why we invest in a main stage where we're having like 75, 100 events a year. 
on the main stage because it's so important to my why. I may have to make all kinds of other tough decisions, you know, getting back to the profit and loss statement and where to invest other money because we're investing a significant chunk in the community room, but I am not compromising on that piece. I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. Before you even jump to that next point, I, I just want to add on to this that so many people, I, I don't know what my why is. They tell me this. I don't know what my why is. Mm. It's Once you figure that out, it makes a lot of other things in the business a lot easier. Motivating your team, your yes. marketing story. Uh, it, it, it gives you this rich pot to draw from for a lot of things that that are important to the business. And I think this book can help people discover that. Wouldn't you say that's true? 100%. And yeah. you you know your why. Everybody listening to here is is knows it. They just haven't... We haven't taken the actual time to look... To be like, wait a minute. I want to not only sort of... You know, you got to spend time reading the book and then you got to spend time doing the exercises. Got it. And you got to sit down and write write about it. He's not... You're not going to know the why just by reading the book. But, you know, but... But we do know in our heart of hearts why we're showing up to teach that eight-year-old piano. See, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Okay. I'm not joking when I say this. Two days ago, I, I, I had someone email me. They're in one of our marketing trainings right now. And I'm telling, mm-hmm. I'm kind of surfacing the why, not in the words that we say here, but essentially. And they said, I don't know. I just feel like I teach piano lessons. Mm. I don't have... So there are some folks who do struggle with this, with, with, um, with coming up with that. And again, I think that's why I mentioned what I mentioned was that if someone's struggling with that piece, this, this might be the book to read before every other book on the list that we're talking about here. But I, so, so I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, Nate. I think that everybody has a why. I just don't think it's been surfaced yet for some people. Agreed. Yeah, yes. that, that's the language that's what- I put on it. Yeah, I love that language. And that's that's why, you know, that's why this is one of my books is because I reference it, I read from it. Okay, can I give you one more concrete example before we go to our next book? Sure. Um, because I think we've said enough about Start With Why. The title is alone enough. And just watch the YouTube video. Just go to the YouTube, watch this Simon Sinek's video first, and then that'll inspire you. We can put it but in the show notes. A great example. <clears throat> yeah, he gives a great example around Southwest Airline. And he's like, you know, cheap is just one of the things that Southwest does to help us understand what they believe, right? So Southwest has always positioned themselves as, they wouldn't say a cheap airline, but an affordable and an approachable airline for people. And I wrote in the sidebar, you know, is our price in line with our beliefs? Was the question I wrote myself when I read that. When I read that. And and so we're not an inexpensive. We're not the Southwest Airlines of music lessons in Brooklyn, not at all. And I've grown much more comfortable with how we price our services, 
because of the choices like investing in a community room. Mm-hmm. I'm saying in order for us to follow through on our why, our purpose, it costs this to enroll your family in our program because there are so many benefits that go way beyond the 45-minute piano lesson you just took. And one of which is the community room you're in and all of the events that we put on to try to get you to commune with other families and collaborate your, you know. So so it's interesting. It's like, it's, uh, you know, Cynic does a great job of raising all these points that are going to have you really question some of the choices you're making in your in your program and whether they align with your beliefs. Um, that was an example where I was like, yeah, no, I am comfortable with our pricing structure because I'm very comfortable with where we're investing, you know, the margin on that 45-minute yeah. lesson. So, okay, that brings us to our next book, Enough on the Why. Ooh, this is a doozy. This book, Failure of Nerve, Daniel. I remember when you were like, dude, you got to read this. And I ordered it. And man, it's a heavy read. Tell me why um, Failure of Nerve is on there for you. Okay. And before I even say that, I have to acknowledge what you said there. It's a heavy read. Yeah. Uh, I started this episode with that quote from Naval Ravikant. I have another quote from him about business books. He says, most business books are a 30-page concept that have been stretched to 200 pages because that's what the publisher asked for. Both scaling, up, yeah, both scaling up and this book are not that. Both yeah. Scaling up is more like a manual. Uh, this book, per page, every page in this book is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so why did I choose why. this? Yeah, yeah. So I'll start with why. Okay. (laughs) Dad joke, sorry. This book changed my life. Um, It was introduced to me by a mentor. I ended up spending 22 months in a book study on this book where we met weekly, not monthly, weekly for 22 months for several hours a week on a Wednesday morning. That's how dense this book was. where, Where literally we would say, read this chapter and then we would only get through the first five to six pages in a couple hours. Just it's dense right now. I'm going through this with about a dozen and a half studio owners in one of my coaching programs. It's blowing people's minds. It's opening. But here's why. Here's why it's so important. Uh, This book changed my life. It helped me to see some major blind spots. And this book isn't necessarily one on business. Um, It's called uh, Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. It is a leadership book. And... Mm -hmm. The primary takeaway that I I had from this book was that leadership is not a technique. It is an emotional process. That there is an emotional component underneath leadership that can influence everything in that organization. That is a vast reduction of everything this book goes into. There are some concepts, some specific concepts in here that help make sense of my life, help make sense of relationships that had gone bad. I'm going to give a specific example. One of them, um, one is called an emotional triangle. I'm going, to, I'm going to even give a few examples. That's in fact, one of the first blog posts I ever wrote for uh, Grow Your Music Studio way back in 2016, I referenced this book and that blog post was on makeup lessons and how we are actually involved in a, an emotional triangle between our policies, us, and the parent. And so the way an emotional triangle work is that if the parent doesn't like the policy, to avoid their anxiety over the policy, they will try to, to work on us. 
and we Ooh. feel triangled in, in, in this emotional triangle. So what Friedman says is that any place you're experiencing stress in your life between you and another two other people or you and another person and an inert object like a makeup policy or a payment, everybody needs to pay by the fifth, things like that, you can identify stressors with these triangles. And then he talks about how you can get into multiple triangles. Like maybe you have a co-owner and then there's a teacher and then there's a, a, um, a family in your studio. So you can get into these weird things. And, and I think we all instinctively know this. Any place where we feel pressure uh, in our studio, maybe a parent's complaining about a specific teacher. Um, maybe a parent is coming to us and saying, hey, can you help my kid practice more? They're trying to avoid the responsibility of parenting their own child. So these are all emotional triangles. This is a very specific example in this book. There's a lot of other concepts in here that are really, really um, huge, that, that were huge to me. But overall, I'd say that studio owners should read this for two very specific reasons, although there's many more. I mean, this is a, this isn't even trying to be a self-development book, but it's the best self-development book I've ever read. Um, if, if you have a team to manage, if you have customers to manage, um, and you have other people in your life that are impacting the business, this book will make sense of how to exhibit leadership in those relationships and how to have healthy relationships with all those people in your life. Okay, so Daniel, I want to go back to this. <laughs> <laughs> like mic drop right there. So but let me just highlight a couple things you said, but I want to ask a very specific question back okay. around this this triangle. This Can I call it like a tension triangle? Or what, yeah. what, I, I, I can't remember exactly the terminology you used. The emotional triangle. Emotional, the emotional triangle. triangle. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So 22 weeks in a book study, that sounds like for any... 22 any months. 22, 22 months. 22 months. Sorry. Yeah. Months. What am I saying? Weeks. <laughs> ah, who's going to get... We didn't, you got through a chapter in 22 weeks. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. So, <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to say is that if... For all of our listeners, first of all, if you're listening, if you're this deep into the podcast, you're like Daniel and I. You're just hyper curious about things. Right? So that is a total gift, by the way. If you pick any one of our five books and five one, find one or two friends that you can spend 22 months reading through one of these books together with, that's such an amazing part of your story, Daniel, that you, that you uh, went through that with um, you know, a group of people reading this book. What an awesome, awesome idea. Okay, so now, just wanted to highlight that because that's, if you take nothing from this episode... Yeah. It's put rich. Together, yeah, <laughs> put together a business book club and pick one of our five books and work through it with friends. Okay, so emotional triangle. I'd love to know, I'd love to talk about the I'd love to for you to dig in to the I like your practice example. Mom says daughter isn't practicing enough comes to you as let's say your studio owner. You're not even the teacher. Let's say just mm -hmm. your studio owner. Um can you unpack that for us? What's the solution? Like, in other words, we've now this book has helped us observe that emotional yes. triangle. But can you talk about like the uh, one or two or three actions you might take based on that heightened awareness now that you have having read Failure of Nerve and being able to contextualize that question or that comment from a parent? My yes. daughter's not acting enough. And as you put it, that means that she's actually trying to shift the responsibility onto your shoulders as the studio owner. What do you do with that? Okay. You made a really good observation. You made a good observation in noticing that the triangle only describes the relationship. 
Friedman straight up says in this book, this is not a technique book on how to do leadership better. Mm, what's okay. interesting, well, I don't know, we've got, we got way more to go. But what's interesting is that even though there isn't techniques on how to handle these stressor situations, the reason why he, there aren't techniques in the book is that he's actually going deeper than technique. He's going to, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'm going to use this word. He's going to the soul level. He's going deeper than just simply how. And he's modeling in the book what a healthy, self-differentiated leader looks like. So mm-hmm. if you're really clear on your goals and what you stand for, it's going to be a lot easier for you to look at that parent and say, you know, we can't compromise on, on, on um, the makeup policy. We do this for 200 other people in this school. I, I can't make an exception for you. That's a hard conversation to have. But if you understand self-differentiation and you understand the principles that underlie it and why it's so, why it's so vital to a business, it's going to be a lot easier for you to say that even if it isn't easy in the moment. Same thing with the parent. You know, as a leader, you look at the parent saying that to you, hey, can you help my daughter practice more? Or, oh, I think we're going to quit because she's just not practicing. Like maybe they're trying to get a little bit of leverage over you. This book, again, will kind of help you surface what the motives might be behind that statement. Um, After reading this book, I became much more finely tuned to when someone was trying to manipulate me and when someone was just kind of honestly putting the putting it out there. I, yeah, I became more finely tuned to that. Um, so there is some wisdom that's required in handling those situations. I think what this book did was uh, mature me. I think this book helped me see some blind spots I have. I mean, there's a whole concept of this book that I'm uh, we don't even have the time to get into here. And honestly, I'm in this book study now with a dozen and a half studio owners um, where... <laughs> We're kind of going through slowly as well because there's so many concepts in here. But one of them is just the idea that in in modern society, in a modernized society, leadership has basically turned into undercutting and undervaluing that emotional side of it and putting all the focus on data and technique. So leaders really are tempted by social media, by advertising to believe that, oh, if I just knew the right way to do this, we wouldn't have had this problem. Or if it didn't work, it must have been because I was using the wrong system. This is not how leadership has been for a long time. This is a holy 20th and 21st century problem. And it's come because in the last 30 years, we have created a thousand times more data, 10,000 times, maybe a hundred thousand times more data in the last 30 years than all of human history up to that point. And so we are at a point now where as leaders, we're bombarded with all this information. And the temptation is to think that if we just knew the right answer, that we could avoid all these problems. Oh, we could hire better. Oh, we could do this. This is why even in the way that we're doing this podcast, I want to be very careful that I'm not saying, oh, this is the w- one way to do hiring. Like that's that's a topic we've yeah. talked about at length over the last 10 episodes or 11 or 12 or however it's been at this point. Um, but we're always very careful to put in there and and address some of those emotional realities that are underneath it. Because in the end, the specific system isn't going, and we've said this, the specific Mm -hmm. system isn't going to look like BMFs. It isn't going to look like maybe one that I've helped the studio design. What's far more important is that underneath all that, the emotional realities that are going on, that those have been addressed. And 
the outworking of that is you're probably going to design something that works more or less, even if it doesn't necessarily look like Nate's or Daniel's or this particular person's who, you know, they're saying on social media, ooh, look at what we've done. Um, look, look at how good this is. This is the system for everyone. You can begin to have a really good BS meter and, and start to see through that and realize, ah, it's not data. We don't need more data. What we need yes. is people with a backbone. What I need to be as a leader with a backbone and, and, and the other stuff will take care of itself. That's what this book, oh man, that's just one of the many things that this book helped me to see. And um, it made managing a team much easier. I referenced this earlier in the people section of scaling up that, and this is kind of the part that I, I didn't mention. Like I mentioned, like I didn't really have a problem with the people section, even though I've built a team fairly rapidly over the last five years. Part of the reason why We've avoided emotional triangles. We've avoided toxic culture in, in, in it. And a lot of it has to do not because of the technique-based stuff, which is here, but the emotional-based stuff, which is here. Yes. Um, before I jump to your book, Nate, I, I'm able to just put a little thought in here because I've referenced no. this. But um, I have a 12 or 14-page PDF that mm. gives a high-level overview of the concepts in the book. I've even shared that with people and they've made massive changes. Like they, oh my word, this describes me. I get it now. Yes. Fascinating that even the just exposure, even not in the depth that the book goes into, but just exposure to the concepts for people, they act like they've never heard or seen of it before. This is a truly wholly original book. Uh, it's rare that I've encountered the, the concepts in this book other places. Like they hint at it. Um, this guy is just a, a genius. But if someone were to want that PDF, just send me an email. Um, I'd be happy to share it. If someone's interested in going through this book study with these other studio owners, just reach out to me. Um, contact page on growyourmusicstudio.com or email daniel growyourmusicstudio.com. Um, and I can give you information about getting into that. But um, I just figured since I mentioned both of those yeah. things, I'd at least give people an outlet for finding out how to, to participate in that. But that leaves me to the last book that we were covering here. This is one that you put on the list, Nate. It's called The Four Disciplines of Execution by Sean Covey. What, uh, what are your thoughts about this? Why do you recommend this book? Our last yeah, book so here. This is, this is a classic technique book. Okay. Very simple, an easy read. Mm. I have the audio version. You know, I've got an audible version that I listen to. I might listen to it annually, you know? Mm. Um, and then I give this to like the last time I gifted it to someone on the team was to our a director of operations a couple years ago, a few years back. So this is the son of um, Stephen Covey, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And basically he captures this idea so beautifully, which is the notion of, and this is why it was important to me, is the notion of a lead measure versus a lag measure. Right, You've done a really awesome job in this podcast, Daniel, of highlighting how we don't need more data. We need the right data. And then we need to be able to see the stories in it. I don't need to hear your story. I just need to see the numbers so that, the I, numbers. Can show, so that I can see the story in it. So this book basically is, is a simply an activation book. It's an execution book, as the title says. Um, it's about how to make sure you're executing on the right thing. So... In a nutshell, for us as you know, music school owners, we're generally pretty clear on the outcome we want. Like we, you and I, work with a bunch of owners, and and they'll generally say like, if you know, they might not be clear right at the beginning, but when we're like, hey, let's let's really define success a year from now. 
they'll get pretty clear. They'll be like, I want to make X amount of money. I want to enroll this many students. I'd like to expand my studio by three to five teachers, something like that. So we're getting clear on the outcome. But where it immediately gets a little fuzzy is on how to actually get there. It's a little bit on the strategy piece and a lot of it on the activation piece. So he sort of introduces this idea in the book, which was revelatory for me, which was don't measure, don't have your dashboard measure the outcome because it's too late by then. You've already arrived at, say, like by January 1st, 2023, we're going to do X. And then you get to January 1st, 2023, and you're like, well, we were off by $100,000 or by 100 students. He just simply says, okay, what are the lead measures? What are the actual actions that you and the other members of your team are going to take every single week to uh, let you know whether you're on the right path, whether the strategic choice you've made in your music school is actually moving you towards that annual goal that you're going to arrive at 12 months later. So this might not sound, you know, people listening might be like, well, that's obvious, Nate. Well, I put this book on there because it wasn't obvious to me and we were growing fast at Brooklyn Music Factory, but I wasn't clear on what we were doing that was working. (laughs) We were just doing it. So I'm going to pause there, but that's the four disciplines of execution. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm mentioned most important discipline, which is the idea of measuring lead, you know, lead measures. I can talk about specifics too, but any, any thoughts come to mind for you, Daniel, on it? To me, this it feels like this one was a powerful one to you because it opened your eyes to a specific thing that you needed to do in the business or a specific way to do it. And I think we all have those books. Uh, there was a book, I read it cover to cover in, a, in less than a week and then immediately reread it. I've never done that with a book. I did this in a mm. book on sales. It was so powerful. Opened my eyes to something that I hadn't seen I didn't necessarily put it on this list because it's not one that I've gone back and reread, which is true of the two books I mentioned here. But um, I think you've been really, really clear on what this book did for you, why it was important. Um, I think to me, the only thing I need to highlight was that idea of what kind of book it is. It sounds like it's going to give someone a very specific thing to do that's really important to the health of the health of the business. So yeah, and I want to, and the reason why I shared it with team members. So I've used this language, lead measure. What are our lead measures going to be? For example, we just finished our annual planning. We want to achieve, like we're going to be selling out our mini keys and our jam band 101s, which were reduced during COVID and they're expanding by the fall of 2022. So that's a very clear target for us. You know, by October 15th, 2022, we will have enrolled X number of students, da, da, da. So it's now six months prior to that. And I'm asking the team, well, what lead measures can we start measuring next week that will tell us we're on the right path? Right? So you, you, people might be like, but wait, dude, you're not enrolling those students until for another six months they don't start. What do you, what do you mean? You can't talk about lead. Well, yes, you can. You can be like, okay, well, historically, we've needed to do, we've needed to launch the following um, series of ads to raise awareness, and we've done it by May 1st so that we complete enrollment for the fall by June 30th. Okay, so the lead measures right now that we're going to measure are um, 
do we, you know, are we each week, are we gathering all the marketing assets? Each week, are we, have we researched the ads that have been successful in years past? You know, we're taking basic, simple lead measure. You're like, well, those just sounds like actions on a project list, right? Okay, I get it. But then what you're going to do is you're going to say, okay, well, um, we're going to start, we're going to launch these ads in March. And we are going to look at the lead measures of how many, you know, basic things. You don't have to make up new numbers. It's just how many people have visited the, the landing page? How many opt-in forms are we getting? Are we on target given years past the number of inquiries we've gotten around these classes the same time the year before in March? Are we on target? So those are starting to begin to, those are lead measures. We do very specific things here where we're like, a lead measure we can do now is we can call everyone who's enrolled in these classes last year now and ask them, are you interested in us saving you a spot or knowing about it next fall? So we'll literally do that. We will call these families six months in advance, and that's a simple lead measure we can take to just generate a really robust list that will ensure we get to sold out. So the lead measures can change seasonally as you get closer to the target, but the point is, you're not waiting to measure the outcome, say, as you, as you close in on the target. You're, you're defining some lead measures. And for me or for you, as someone who might be working with a, a team, doesn't matter how small it is, is you're using this language. You're saying, hey, what lead measures can we start putting on a dashboard now or talk about every week? Don't. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the fifth book. It's not nearly as sexy as some of the other books we talked about, sure. but it had a very profound impact on the way we've operated at BMF. And so. I think the fact that you still gift this book to employees, I think that's worth mentioning that it's important enough to you that you want to educate the people around you on it and uh, certainly can see why you'd include it in this list. So we got through it, Nate. And, um, <laughs> you know, for me... There's probably a couple other books that I would be tempted to put in here, but the two that I picked were in, incredibly helpful to me. I still reference them to this day. One of them I discovered over 10 years ago. Um, the notes I have written in the margins of that book are pretty extensive, and um, it's important to me. I'm glad you shared these with us, Nate, and um, I hope this has all been helpful for someone, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please... Share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.